Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. And joined, as always, by some special guests today. My friend Yodi is with us. Hey, Yodi. Hi, Raj. How are you? This is terribly exciting. It is exciting to have you here. Uh, I'll, I'll say more about you in a second, but let me also welcome my colleague, Edva Saldinger who is a senior reporter at DevX. Hi, Bob. Hi, Raj. Great to be with the two of you. And Yodi, this is your first time on This Week in Global Development. It is such a pleasure to have you. Uh, Yodi Alakija, who I think lots of people listening in certainly know of you if they haven't had the chance to meet you. Uh, as it, you're a real leader in the, in the global health space in particular, in the humanitarian field, and you wear many, many hats, you know, including as the chair of the Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance. You were a special envoy for the ACT Accelerator, you chair the board of FIND, and you've been in so many uh, key positions, especially during the last four years of the pandemic. So it's great to get you on this weekly program where we talk about all the big news in global development and global health and humanitarian response. Um, maybe I could just start, Yodi, by asking you a little bit about this story we published this week, all about what's happening in the world of pandemic preparedness and a report that finds that the 100-day mission that was set out, I guess, maybe three years ago now, um, to kind of ensure that the world is prepared for the next pandemic, that there are some pretty big gaps there. Did you have a chance to see that story? Or what's your take on kind of the, the state of affairs when it comes to being ready for the next pandemic that might hit us? <laughs> well, you find me actually in Rome, having just attended the launch of that report um, and having just been at the meeting with, which was chaired by um, or led now by um, Mona Sima, the chief scientist of Canada, previously by Sir Patrick Valance. So I'm right here in the middle of it. I can tell you all about how prepared we are. Not? That is very exciting, or how not prepared we are. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, the, the report is a little bit shocking because essentially it shows that you know, although there's been this huge effort underway, most of the funding is still targeted toward coronaviruses, which, you know, maybe it makes sense to be focusing on coronaviruses in the wake of COVID-19, but that there are many other disease areas, including with high fatality rates like Marburg and Nipah, that are lacking. Um, and apparently there's no diagnostics in late stage clinical development for Zika and SARS. Uh, yeah, I mean, give us a sense of what it's like there in Rome. What, what has the conversation been? Well, we had really, really great conversations all day yesterday, um, focusing on, and it, it's interesting that you picked up on the diagnostics part of it in the report, which your, your DevX report, which I just read, because that very much was the focus. Yesterday, we were all very clear that whilst the world focused completely on vaccines during COVID and now post-COVID, you know, we now haven't really looked at the fact that we need to be doing all of the, the work in in parallel, but almost in a continuum, because I said to the meeting yesterday that 100 days is too late for a, a vaccine, but 10 days is too late for a diagnostics test. Because, and I use the example of myself as a sort of a, a, a frequent flyer, have suitcase and world travel, and who has lives on different separate parts of the, 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 the globe. And that if I wake up 
you know, say this morning in Abuja, Nigeria, which is my home, and I get on a plane having acquired some locally, some virus that, you know, and there's zoonotic spillover. There's so much going on um, in, in, in the sort of one health arena. We, we won't get into that. But that I could be in London in six hours and, you know, connect with people and mingle in the lounge at, at Heathrow Airport and then get on another plane and be in Dubai within another seven hours, mingle in that airport, get on another plane, be in Sydney, go from there, from Sydney, mingle and be in, in Fiji, the Fiji Islands, which is my other home. What would I have done and how many people would I have infected? And it's interesting that your report also sort of, I mean, you've been talking a little bit about AI because Rick Bright, my dear friend, Dr. Rick Bright, um, was also at the meeting and he said, oh, my Yodi, we'd really like to sort of attach some tracker, some AI type tracker onto you. We should do that once and see how many people you would potentially infect and how many would infect you. But the point we got out of that conversation is that- <laughs> Yodi, that I, I've got to laugh at that to have, <laughs> to have the former head of BARDA saying that they ought to track you specifically of all people on earth. That's, that's something. I don't know if that would make me feel confident or worry me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, Rick was, he was, he, and he was not joking. He said, we need the funding for this kind of thing. And the issue is that we don't have the funding and nobody is focusing on the need for diagnostic tests. And yet the world is forgetting that if we don't test, we can't, or if, if first of all, if we don't have surveillance, which requires diagnostics and re requires funding for diagnostics, we won't pick up these diseases or, 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 or outbreaks at at origin and, and outbreaks aren't going to start necessarily in Geneva or, or China. I mean, I think we were lucky the last time, to be really honest with you, with SARS-CoV-2 that it actually did start in China because had it started in the back of beyond somewhere like Ebola did, you know, that nobody could reach and it took weeks and weeks and had been so contagious, we would be telling a different story today. So the report has shown that diagnostics is severely underfunded and we're not paying enough attention to it. And also, I agree that the the disproportionate focus on coronaviruses, when we know that the next pandemic is very likely, it's unlikely to be. It could be a flu. We we don't know, and there's still too much undone, too many doors that have not been closed um, that we are not yet focusing on. But it all comes down to the money, right? As it all, as it always does, and speaking of the money, one of the things that the DevEx piece points out is that there's about 10% of the spending uh, that goes into R&D for vaccines going into R&D for diagnostics. So that kind of just underlines your point that diagnostics are underappreciated, underfunded. And I mentioned your association with FIND, which is a group that's trying to change that. And maybe you can give us a sense since you're in all these rooms, what is the current effort, if there is one, to change the dynamic on funding for diagnostics? You know, what is Gates doing? What is Welcome doing? What are the big players in this space doing, if anything? Well, number one, I would argue, and this might be a slightly sort of um, um, controversial take, but you know me, I'm not going to shy away from that, that we need to stop looking at all the usual suspects. I mean, many of these people have done a huge amount and have, have put a lot of money in, I mean, especially the philanthropies, I mean, particularly Gates. Now, I mean, they have done so much that we need. And the other hat that you didn't mention is that I also co-chair now the Impact Investment Initiative for Global Health, the G7 initiative, which is looking at how do we bring private funding? How do we bring private money in? But not just bring private funding in. How do we help the world to see 
health and as invest as an investment as a, as opposed to a spend. You know, part of it is that most people, I mean, it, it the sort of traditional funders are those those areas. I mean, look, Bill Gates is beginning to talk more and more about diagnostics because he and I had a conversation about this actually um, at the the launch of the Triple I event in in at Unger at the Japan House in Unger, where you know I, I was telling him about the Egypt story and how they had invested for every dollar they invested in the surveillance and and and, and testing for hepatitis C, they got a three point six two dollar return on that investment. And how about if we start talking about diagnostics as a as an investment and talking about it in terms of return on investment and he got up on stage that day and talked about the fact that we need to make quality affordable diagnostics available to all so we are beginning to get the issue onto the agenda but i also think we need to start thinking beyond traditional donors and traditional funders you know we at find i speak with my find hat are a global south facing international institution that has partnerships with indonesia with 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 brazil with many countries around the world that are crying out for their own their own diagnostics capacity building they want to begin to manufacture their own diagnostics we don't necessarily have the same ip issues it is not a you know it's not a hot potato in terms of um the the, the pharma industry and yet this could be the thing that stops the next big thing how how are we not putting money in it yeah, it's a great point. Bob, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to jump in. I've been having a lot of conversations over the last few weeks with folks about trends that they um, expect we'll see this year in the development finance um, realm. And I, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that later because it is a big year for development finance on a whole number um, of different sort of metrics. But one, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, I think in, in the development finance space, we've seen such a sort of emphasis on climate finance. We saw MDBs make you know, billions of dollars of commitments at um, COP in December, which many think is a great thing. But as we're seeing sort of this real shift around climate finance, I'm curious um, sort of from your, from your post chairing that um, Impact Investing Initiative on Global Health Committee, if you think that we're starting to see sort of shift in focus away from issues like health and other critical development issues, sort of as that temperature is rising on the climate finance discussion. Um, we absolutely are. We're seeing, of course, we had the, you know, um, the sort of difficult to call them the the glory years, the horrible years, the gory years, maybe let's call them the gory years of COVID, but in terms of funding for health, you know, everybody, of course, saw, saw health then as an investment because they realised that if they didn't invest in stopping this thing, the economy was tanking. And so we saw, you know, the, the world pour money in. I mean, you've just referred to BADA, you know, the 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 twelve point four billion dollars that the U.S. government put into accelerating the 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 you know the R and D for diagnostics for vaccines etc. which is really I mean a huge part of why we got them so quickly. Um, but now that attention is waning, and that attention is waning because climate has a metric. Climate is and and the climate agenda is has been very highly. Uh, politicized is the wrong word, it's been very supported um, at very high political levels. And I think what we've done with health is that we have not really fully committed to understanding as a global community. And I think we need to start speaking the language 
of those, the politicians. We need to start speaking the language of financiers. And this is what I mean by talking about ROIs, you know, beginning. To, I, I, I didn't understand this until a few months ago, <laughs> quite frankly, you know, but of course I'm now working with, with investment um, people on the G7 initiative for, for global health. And they're all saying, well, tell me what's the, bot- what's the bottom line? How much am I going to make from this? What does investing in health mean? And I think you in the sort of in the media community and journalists and what have you start need to start helping us articulate this before we have a next big thing. Because until we do that, they're not going to pay attention. It's a great point and a great question. I actually just back from Davos, uh, you know, last week was the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, and this was a big theme. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a big theme on the main public stages of the conference, but it was a big theme in the back rooms and the hallways and the side dinners and events. Uh, People in the global health community were talking a lot about the nexus of climate and health. And in particular, we're saying, how do we get some of this magic sauce that the climate community has got in terms of all the billions of dollars that are flowing in and and the dramatic interest from private sector? How do we get some of that in the health world? And I think there's a desire for that at this point, but maybe as you are pointing out, Yodi, there's still a lack of a clear narrative and model for how you do it. Because of course, in the climate space, a lot of the good work you can do, windmills and solar panels, actually generate revenue, right? There's a very clear direct line for making a financially uh, successful investment that also has great benefits for the planet. It's a little less clear. The line is a little less clear for health because, of course, we know if we save lives in the long run, that's better for an economy. It makes an economy more productive. And so in the long run, people who are healthier and are living longer will pay more tax and that will benefit the economy and the government and its budget to pay back, let's say, a bond. But boy, that's a long run. And it's a long uh, and, and challenging set of links in that chain before you can get to that that funding picture. So it's a it's a really challenging question. And it's one that I can say coming out of those meetings last week is very much front of mind in the global health community right now. I was just going to jump in and say, I think that um, one of the things that's really difficult to monetize or find that ROI, and that's one of the reasons that for certain elements of development finance, it is really hard to find that sort of business case and to sell it to investors, is that anything that is sort of um, trying to price the prevention of harm, so the prevention of a um, you know next pandemic, uh, you know a lot of adaptation finance, right? The prevention of um, the destruction, you know, the destruction of communities as a result of climate catastrophes. Those things are really, really hard to find that sort of business case in a way to monetize it. And I think that's where um, you know there there may be a need for a more sophisticated conversation about in those realms, how do you look at using, you know, traditional grant and donor financing for some aspects of that or looking to blend different types of capital um, to create business models that that make sense. And I think that is a real challenge. And this is one reason why it's so important when we think of private sector finance to include the insurance industry, because they have they have a lot to say about how to finance the prevention of disaster, right? That is their business. And uh, they're in some of these conversations. We brought them into some of these conversations ourselves, but I would say they're still at the fringes compared to the potential role that they could play. Well, I think really, 
you know, when you say that we need to have a more, um, Adler, you talk about a more sophisticated conversation. I would say we need to have a simplistic conversation. I don't think it is a far off, you know, disaster scenario. Look, we've just all lived and are still living through the four years of COVID and what did, the, the shock that that was on the global economy. I think we in global health and development need to get better about articulating what it could look like if we don't do this. We need to get the metrics correct. In, and I think the climate community had the right metrics. They had the 2.0, 1.5 degrees. They had metrics. Also, they are more investable, yes. But when I talk to people in investing investment communities about investing in global health, and of course, it's all about investing in low and middle income countries, which again, it's very sort of paternalistic and top down. They all talk about wanting to go build hospitals in places like Lagos and Abuja and, and Nairobi, etc. And yet that is not what is needed. But And, and you know, the, if you want to invest in preventing the next big thing, you have to have from those experts, we need to be speaking and understanding what each other means. So when I say invest in health, what do I, Yodi, Alakaja, what do I mean by that? And when an investor um, from, from an investment community talks about investing in health, does he mean investing in AI for the future? Does he mean investing in, in, in you know, telemedicine or telehealth for the future? Does he understand that what we need to do is invest today for that healthier tomorrow? But maybe we, what we need to start doing is, like I said, around the, the, the Egypt example, is bringing forth examples like that. They saw such a huge turnaround in their productivity and their economy because hep, hep C was devastating their people. And maybe when we start to bring up examples like this, the investment world will understand what we mean. Yeah, and I mean, thinking of where investments have paid off, we can segue to the investments in malaria vaccines. I mean, we are now, it's almost like an embarrassment of riches, where there are two approved malaria vaccines. And as we just reported this week, Cameroon is the first country that has signed up to roll out uh, RTSS. And it is not the last. There's uh, dozens of countries, especially that have a high burden of pediatric death from malaria that are really excited by these two uh, vaccine options and are beginning to, to think about how to roll them out. And Cameroon has actually signed up to do it. And so I wanted to get your, your take on, on what that means and whether this is kind of the start of a new era when it comes to malaria. That is just such exciting news the malaria vaccine not only have they signed up they've rolled it out and the first person to get a vaccine it was a young lady called daniela in um cameroon the other day i think the beginning of the week uh we for those of us who've lived in the malaria endemic regions and who are permanently you know every time you have a fever pre-covid that was because now you have a fever and everyone goes oh my gosh have you had a test um but you know then it was it was just always malaria and it, or or it was malaria plus typhoid which is the most bizarre thing in my mind but it's one of the things that pharmacists will always and places like nigeria where primary health care clinics are few and far between, you know, people are going to pharmacies and are then getting prescribed antibiotics, which is taking us on to the next thing, which of course is currently a pandemic in itself. The, you know, AMR, um, the antimicrobial resistance pandemic, which is a silent, silent pandemic. So the malaria vaccine, that rollout is incredibly exciting. I hope we're able to 
get those shots from ports to arms to use, uh, you know, my, my little sort of hashtag that was part of, of the conference that I led in, in Abuja a few years ago, because it's all well and fine to have those vaccines, but you need to be able to get them to the communities where they're needed the most. We need to fund delivery. We need to encourage governments to ensure that, that we're not just having shiny, you know, fancy um uh, vaccination ceremonies or, or handover ceremonies in capital cities, but that we're going deep into the communities where it is most needed. Look, malaria is on the rise across the world. We had this conversation, had this conversation yesterday with the um, head of uh, the director general of IFPMA, who was also at this conference, talking about that there's almost an investment case now for the malaria vaccine, because we're about to start seeing malaria, or we're already seeing it, in parts of Europe and in parts of North America, because of climate change. Um, you know, when the chief scientist, Mona, yesterday for Canada was talking to us, she was talking about them, them really worrying about the melting permafrost and not new emerging diseases, but what is going to, what is going to come up from under that melting permafrost because of climate change. So the two are linked, actually, what, you know, um, Adva, you had said earlier, climate change and health, yes, that nexus is very linked, but the money is still very much on the climate side. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The linkage is there in reality and the way we're going to experience um, climate, a lot of it is through health. It's through heat waves and the cardiovascular impact that has on people, and it's through infectious diseases spreading to new areas. I mean, just to underline something you said, Yodi, this is going to be a real challenge. There were a lot of these malaria vaccines. If you think about who they're trying to reach, very large numbers of children, um, often in rural areas, we're talking about places where malaria is, is endemic, it's often very rural. And these, this is a vaccine, the RTSS, that requires four doses. There's a chance, as we mentioned in the piece, that they might take away that fourth dose. There's some good evidence that suggests maybe it's, it's not absolutely necessary. But right now, the indication is four doses, and that fourth dose is like several months, seven, eight, nine months after the third dose. So when you think about the challenges here, identifying that kid, making sure it's the same kid from five months to nine months, he gets three doses, and then ensuring you get back to that child nine months later for a fourth dose, this is not a small task. And this is going to require everything that the global health community has to offer in terms of tracking of patients, educating moms and families about the importance of this, storing vaccines and ensuring they have them available when they're required. This is not a small thing to do. Right, Yodi? Well, this is going to test the strength of primary health care systems. This is the very core of our primary health care. You know, you have to reach these kids, as you say, in their communities. But let's look at the opportunity. You know, you just spoke about education. Let's look at the opportunity to educate. Let's look at the opportunity to, to do cervical cancer screening for many of those mothers. Look at the opportunity to bring their teenage sisters in and have the HPV vaccine. I mean, I see every rollout of everything, as I did with COVID, as an opportunity to have healthier communities. If only we didn't live in silos because those willing the malaria vaccine and the rollout of the malaria vaccine, you know how it is, will then say, well, you can't do cervical cancer screening at the same time. But hang on, it's the same healthcare worker. It's the same community. You know, we can't have buses that are labeled malaria bus malaria vaccine and buses that are labeled hpv but buses that are labeled labeled polio why don't we bundle these things together during covid i was hugely in 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 favor of us having you know 
mobile vaccination buses and clinics taking the vaccines, particularly in Africa and other low-income settings, hard-to-reach settings, taking it, doing a whole family wellness check, you know, taking diagnostic kits where they, they exist, blood pressure machines. I mean, my country, Nigeria, has some of the highest rates of people with blood pressure who don't know that they're, they're hypertensive in the world. I think only 1%. We're, having, we're seeing 30-year-olds drop dead. Why don't we bundle these services together? These are the ways in which we're going to, you know, be, be cost-effective in our service delivery and also begin to create that, that culture of working together together um, to, to do both diagnostics, vaccinate, um, you know, screening, screening services, wellness checks. It is the mother who often, as you say, needs that education. Why don't we do all the education at the same point? It's a huge opportunity, but I hope the global health world will see it as that and it won't go into the, you know, fund for for for, for the vertical funds and, and, and disappear into that one thing. It's such a great point. I'm glad you raised it. And it is this tension that we struggle with continually about the political support for vertical issues and then the reality that you need a strong primary healthcare system to do all of it. It's such a great point that this is an opportunity. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevX Newswire and visit devx.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. We are fast running out of time, and I want to make sure we get to a couple of other important stories this week. Um, Advai, you had a piece about the 20th anniversary of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which, I don't know, it's not that widely known around the world, although I think people in the development sector know it really well. Um, it's reached 20 years, and now it's kind of the subject of a little bit of controversy in terms of its plans to expand. Maybe you could just say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think in countries that have had an MCC compact, it's very well known. Um, but I think more broadly than that, sometimes it isn't, um, it isn't well known. And I had the opportunity actually to sit down with MCC CEO Alice Albright to sort of talk about this, this moment for the agency. And, and as you said, it's sort of, you know, it reached a point where it has a unique model, where it only works with um, sort of the best governed low and lower middle income countries. Countries have to pass a scorecard based on, um, you know, economic, social and governance policy factors. Um, and only countries that pass that scorecard are then eligible for funding big large, like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of grants from MCC. And part of the challenge is that MCC is kind of running out of places to work, running out of countries that pass their strict criteria um, in this low and lower middle country bracket. And so one of the things that they've done is they've gone to the U.S. Congress and they have asked Congress um, for the ability to expand their portfolio their portfolio, the countries that they could potentially work in, um, to include some middle income countries. And their, you know, sort of rationale or argument behind this is that 
Um, there is a lot of poverty in, you know, middle income countries that are, you know, maybe have just switched over from being lower middle income countries. And they also have told me, you know, sometimes they'll start the process of working with a country and then it will actually become sort of a upper middle income country um, and they'll no longer be able to work with them, even though they've already sort of started down um, the path of exploring um you know, a partnership and a grant with them. And so their argument is, you know, this is the way, one of the ways that we want to expand. We want to be able to tackle poverty, even in sort of the next level up of country income category. I think there has been, you know, I mean, there's some support in the development community for this idea. Um, and some people have said, well, maybe it's worth looking at other aspects. How could MCC work differently or better within the low and lower middle income country category. There have been some people who said maybe there should be some tweaks to the scorecard or not always looking at the hard hurdle. Um, this first story we wrote this week, I'm planning sort of a series um, of stories over the next several months where we're gonna explore not only sort of what the past 20 years have looked like for MCC, but some of the ideas and proposals that people have about how it could adapt and change moving forward. And so I think this is sort of the start of that, of that conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of the series. And I wonder, you know, how much of this is sort of the unstated issue of China, which is always lurking when it comes to U.S. foreign assistance policy. I mean, I think of the countries, the small island developing states in general, and, and especially the ones in the South Pacific, where China has played a really big role in, in the kinds of things MCC typically funds, infrastructure. And when you think about these small island developing states and, and their call to be treated differently because they say, sure, we're in many cases, middle income, even upper income, but we face a huge threat from, the, from climate change, rising sea levels, et cetera. And, and they really need a massive investment in sustainable infrastructure, given that. I, I would just wanted to say, you've already seen MCC doing more work in those countries, including through its threshold program, um, which is sort of uh, smaller grant programs for countries that don't necessarily yet meet all of the criteria um, of the scorecard to help them sort of address key policy issues. I know they're working um, in Kiribati and it, it's, I mean, I think it's, you know, tens of millions of dollars, but huge amount of money for that country to think through um, policies and especially looking at sort of climate change. but. China is a big part of this legislation too. And I think in my conversation with Alice Albright, we did talk about how MCC presents an alternative model. It's not loans, it's all grants to address critical um, barriers to economic development in countries. I think your point very quickly, also the point that Raj has made about um, the small island development, developing states. Of course, I said in the beginning that my other home is a small island developing state. So I'm a child of the Pacific and my very first job was to those countries. And I know that conversation is very, very top of mind. Um, it's very top of mind because the world is tired of paternalistic de development. The world is tired of being told what being told what to do and how to do it by the traditional donors. And so, you know, if you, the Solomon Islands is a case in point and Solomon Islands is a country I have a lot of, I've, I've had a lot to do with. And the Solomon Islands, of course, as you know, is is, is currently almost rejecting um, US assistance and, and external sort of AusAid and, and other, well, used to be AusAid um, assistant and is leaning, very, leaning heavily into China. Now, if you know the role that that country played during the Second World War, it was sort of the, it was what 
saved the Pacific as it were. So I would imagine with the geopolitical situation and the, the turmoil, the sort of conflict and turmoil in the world right now, that people would be very nervous. I'm having conversations with leaders in those countries that are friends and have been for many, many years. And and, and they're not impressed by the way the, the, the sort of, if you like, the global north versus the global south. And was today on a panel with the Minister of Health for Uruguay, who, who talking about the pandemic had said that, you know, they're considered a high income country and they also would like this shift to be made. We need to have a conversation about how how countries that still have challenges but graduate out of these schemes. I mean, Gavi is a case in point, but we could go on all day if we started talking about that. Right. There, there is a huge question just about the infrastructure and, and kind of the basic premises upon which the entire international system is built. And a lot of countries, in, including, I think, about uh, you know Barbados and Prime Minister Mia Motley, question that and say we need a new approach and it should treat countries like Barbados, uh, like the Solomon Islands, like Fiji differently. Uh, so I think I think it's a fantastic point. And maybe that leads us because we're running fast out of time to just one last story of the week, which is as you're pointing out, Yodi, the, the world is a little bit more complex than it used to be. And the North-South divide is stronger than ever. Um, and it's really quite multipolar. And one of those poles, one of those growing powers uh, is the Gulf states, and in particular the UAE, and we've got an, an exclusive story this week about uh, how they've been using that power at the UN, and I thought maybe, Advai, you could you could briefly tell people about it. Yeah, um, it's really interesting story from my colleague, Colin Lynch, and he, you know, looks at a, one specific case as sort of an example of this um, broader issue where uh, Dinesh Matani, who was a former UN sanctions investigator, claims that he was, you know, detained and denied entry into the UAE. So the UAE has denied that this happened. And they, he said that it's because of his work as a former sanctions investigator at the UN. And what Colum found is that the UAE has really sort of used its power at the UN, especially sort of its role on the Security Council's temporary seat there, um, to sort of suppress scrutiny of its own economic activities in Africa and the Middle East. And it derailed candidacies of, you know, half a dozen sanctions panels experts who would criticize the government or Saudi Arabia. So really interesting piece that I encourage everyone to read, looking at how the UAE is really, has been and, and is you know, leveraging its power um, at the UN, especially sort of around this specific, um, you know, criticism and, and uh, you know, sort of tackling uh, sanctions panels experts. Right. We get, we're definitely leaving an era when sort of the U.S. and its allies in Western Europe call all the shots. And the UAE, if you haven't been paying attention, has been a rising force, even though it's a small country, obviously a very wealthy country, and it has been projecting its own views and its own uh, strategy uh, far from its from its borders. So it, it's an interesting long term story to pay attention to. And I think this is a, a fascinating window into it. Uh, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, Yodi, but I, I'd love to hear if you have a thought about that or anything else you want to leave us with. And we'll let you get back to uh, what you're doing in Rome. Thank you, um, Raj. Look, I think the age of the sort of traditional Western 
as we know it, that sort of Bretton Woods age is coming in. There's no doubt about it. You talk about the UN Security Council and UAE's seat on that, and yet Africa doesn't have a seat on the UN Security Council. Bretton Woods institutions, and you've heard me say this before, that entire setup was set up post-World War II to fix, a, a specific it was to fix Europe. The problems of the world are now very, very different to that particular problem, and yet it was set up in the image and in the likeness of those it was created to serve. Until we realize that we live in a world not where, where not everybody or where not the majority of people are, you know, white male or, 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 or you know, sort of leaning towards one faith or another and that there is power in different ways popping up in different parts of the world, we're not going to solve the problems of the world. We are in a perilous time as a global community and we need to start to, yes, pull together, but I rather fear that we're foot pulling further apart. You know, we talked about preparedness for the next pandemic, but I would say that we need to be in a state of readiness for, for, for conflict. We need to be in a state of readiness for war. You know, I know people who are now beginning to invest in gold and, and and mobile assets because they're concerned that the world is going to blow up and and they want to be able to move i know you know recently uh, w w which is the best place in the world to live in in the event of a third world war that is what we're living in today and i think those of us in the development community and those of you who have Mike, as it were, and who have the 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 wherewithal and the the audience to speak to the world, need to begin to help us um, articulate this more clearly. That it is not, you know, let us stop having these endless meetings and conferences about how we fix things in the in the distant future. I was also at Davos, which was fascinating. It was my first time there, and I left there thinking, hmm, I wonder whether we'll be able to come back, first of all, next year because of a world at war and whether, you know, whether this would be possible in a couple of years' time. But also wondering about the practicality of some of the conversations that were had there. Talking about the UAE, my, my favourite moment of Davos was leaving Davos, not because I was leaving. I didn't mean it like that. Or maybe I did. I was cold. Um, but it was... Um, the train journey, the train ride, with, which was with somebody from the UAE, um, very significant individual from the UAE, was with an investment banker. Um, there was somebody from UAE, somebody from Nigeria, somebody from Japan, somebody from the US, somebody from Sweden. And we had this fascinating conversation coming down the mountain. And for that moment, we were one. We were one global family. And this, I, I, I couldn't help but think that perhaps we do the alternative Davos, where we all just get a train ticket up down from Zurich to Davos and we meet with strangers on the train and we solve the world's problems there without the pretension and without the, the fuss, but we just have real genuine conversations. I'm worried about the world we live in, about way more than health. I'm worried about famine in Gaza. I'm worried about famine in Tigray and, 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 and part, other parts of Africa. I'm worried for the world we live in and we need to do better. Yeah, that, what, a, what a beautiful way to end the conversation. And you're so right that there is much to be concerned and worried about, and there's much happening in this space. In fact, I think we've just barely scratched the surface of all of the reporting we've done this past week. Um, and so I encourage people who are not yet signed up to the DevX Newswire to go ahead and do that and to, to look at some of the great reporting our journalists are doing around the world on, on these very topics that Yodi just so eloquently mentioned. Uh, thank you so much, Edva Salvinger. Thank you so much, Yodi. What a, what a pleasure to be with you, the two of you today. Thanks, Raj. Thank you so much. Lovely to be with you, Raj. All the best. This has been This Week in Global Development. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.